you just a short stand up, but uh, go ahead and stand up with me this morning. And the Apostles' Creed is written there. And I want us to affirm what we believe, to say this is what we believe, and that we're confident in it, and that not only do our own hearts need to hear it, but the world around us needs to hear. So in response to this question, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. So we've been spending a lot of time in and around the ancient Near East in the area called Galatia, an area of modern-day Turkey, an area that would have been known before the gospel came, and even as the gospel came, as sort of a spiritual Disneyland. You had any choice that you wanted of a god. You had all kinds of different temples there. Uh, You could go and you could worship however you wanted to. There were secret societies. There were perverse uh, societies. There were all kinds of things that you could do uh, to sort of scratch your spiritual itch. And it was one of those pluralistic societies which says, it's fine, you believe what you want to believe. I'm not going to try to put my truth on top of you. Uh, You just go ahead and do whatever you want to do. And then, all of a sudden... Paul shows up on the scene. Paul, who had been a persecutor of the church, Paul, who had hated Jesus and tried to stamp out the church, Paul, the good Jew, uh, who had moved up in the ranks uh, within the Jewish leadership there in Jerusalem and surrounding that area. And he then had this miraculous conversion experience where he saw Christ. He, his life was forever changed. He was no longer called Saul. He was called Paul. People around him didn't believe it. Hey, Saul's coming. You mean Saul, that guy who used to persecute the church? Uh, No, we don't really need to hear his testimony. We don't trust him. They weren't sure. And so Paul went away for a few years. And as he was strengthened and grew, and, and then he went out. He was sent out. And he went into this area of Galatia. And he planted or started churches, Christian churches there. And the main people that Paul was reaching were these pagan uh, Galatian folks, these pagan Roman citizens, the Greeks and all, who were out there. And he was presenting to them not God as one within a myriad of gods for you to choose, but Jesus Christ as the exclusive and only way to a relationship with the Father. No other way to be saved. This was it. He was talking to a people who believed that the humanity and everything created was dirty. And all of a sudden he's saying, but this God, this heavenly Father of ours actually took on human flesh. And entered into history physically, lived among us, and we beheld his glory, and we saw him. And he says, I've, saw, I've seen him and been forever changed by him. And the church began to spread, and it began to grow. And then there were those from uh, Jerusalem and Jews who were out and doing business around in the area. And Paul would go into those synagogues and he would teach and say, you believe in the Torah, you believe in the Old Testament scriptures. He would take the scrolls and he would read from the scrolls and say, I know this Messiah, he's come and his name is Jesus. And I've seen him 
and I've been changed by him. Believe and be fulfilled in the coming of this, your Messiah. And so you had this church now intermingled with these who were former pagans in their, in their life and those who were former religious Jews who are now coming together and worshiping together. And they were thriving. And Paul left to go on and to continue his missionary work and something began to happen. All of a sudden, other teachers came in. Other folks who were claiming to be Christian leaders, claiming to come from the church in Jerusalem, and they were coming in and they were saying to the Jews, don't give up your Jewishness. You need to continue to believe in all uh, of the dietary laws. You've got to continue to do all these things. You've got to keep your distinctions as Jews. This is what you have to do or else God won't accept you. It is Jesus plus your Jewishness. And they would say to those who came from the outside, those pagan outsiders who had come in from the temples and from all of that, they would say, hey, we're glad that you came and you believe in our Messiah, Jesus, but now you have to add something onto it. You have to be circumcised. You have to believe in the dietary laws. You have to have the Sabbath laws. You have to do all of this. So they were adding things in, and the church was getting confused. It was getting lost, and what was happening ultimately is they were leading people not to salvation but to damnation. And Paul writes this letter and he says, folks, this is important. Don't get lost. You begin with Jesus and you end with Jesus. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and there is no other way. And we said that our series, at least, or how we're looking at this, he says, and in that you have gained Christ and through Christ you've gained your freedom. For freedom Christ has set you free. Don't return again, therefore, to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm in your freedom in Christ. Don't move back to legalism on one side, which is trying to avoid God by earning his favor, or moving back to no law at all on the other side, which is avoiding God by not having any relationship with him. Both sides, license and law, is the avoidance of God. One person said it this way, the best way uh, to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. What he meant by that is this, try to be a good person and you won't have to deal with Jesus. We try to legally do it, live our lives so well. And if we do, then we don't need Jesus. What Paul's saying is you constantly have to have Christ in your life. You have to have him in your life. He's the central focus of our lives. He is our life. And so that's where we're coming. This week we're moving into chapter 4. We spent quite a while in chapter 3. And some of you, I've I've heard many, many positive things. But some of you are like, okay, how long are we going to be in Galatians? (laughs) You know, it's real. It's a short little book. And... uh, Um, Well, my thought is this. If we don't get these things right, we miss everything. If the foundation of our faith and our theology isn't right, isn't orthodox in this way, then everything that builds out of that is going to, after a course of time, begin to lean and head in the wrong direction. I wasn't good at directional things, but I know that if you're off just by a little bit, after a while you're going to be off by a lot. And so we're staying here and we're looking, and this week uh, we're talking about something which is built off of the foundation of what God has already done in our lives by Christ's work, that we are forgiven. We've used words like justification, that you're justified, just as if I'd never sinned, that the righteousness and perfections of Jesus have been given to you. We use that illustration of a notebook, that now your notebook with all its messed up stuff in it and the, the secrets of your life and all the things that you've done, Jesus takes on and puts his name on that and says, I'll pay the punishment for that. And he gives us his notebook. Guess what's written in his notebook? Ah, perfection, beauty. And guess whose name's on it? Yours and mine. 
So when God says, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I call you my son or daughter? Why should I do this? You go, here. And he looks and he goes, ah, Bill McCutcheon. I see my son. I see his perfections. And Jesus is standing there going, yes, because I paid for all of his stuff. I did it. That's what we've been talking about. That's the basis of what's happened is that that transaction, uh, that incredible transaction that took place between God and the Son on our behalf. The only thing we added to that, by the way, was a mess. You, You added the messy part to that transaction. You didn't add any of the good part. And Jesus then takes all of us and all of our things and he redeems them. He gives your story in your life meaning. Think about for the person who had been there in Galatia. And something wasn't going right and they'd run to a temple. And they'd try to get it fixed. And that didn't work. And they'd run to another and to another. And they were driven by fear and they were driven by anxiety. And then they hear this message that says, there's a God who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. Accept him and believe in him and you won't have to be anxious or fearful anymore. Can you imagine the collective exhale that would have come out of Galatia at that time? It's almost too good to believe, isn't it? If you teach the gospel right, it's almost too good to believe. Because guess what you get? Everything. Guess what it costs you? Nothing. It costs Jesus everything. So that's where we come to now. There's been this, uh, this idea of justification. Your sins are paid for. Don't go back to the law. You'll never be able to be saved by the works of the law, your moralism, your legalism, your goodness. We said the law is a beautiful thing for the Christian now because it helps guide and direct us and continually points us back to our need of Jesus. But it's that mirror on the wall. So when you see the mess up and the dirt in the mirror, you don't take the mirror off the wall and try to clean yourself with the mirror. The mirror just points out your dirtiness and you go to the thing which cleanses you. And the same for the Christian. The law reminds Reminds us of our need of Christ. I might be alone in this, but I don't think so. Anybody mess up this week? Yeah. Guess what we need this week is Jesus just as much as we did before. Say, Jesus, thank you for being my salvation in the midst of this mess up. Would you cleanse me from it and forgive me? And he says, it's already done. So now, coming out of that, we're going to pick up in chapter 4, and we're going to look. I'm going to back read just a couple of verses. The overhead is going to start with chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to back up just a couple of verses in chapter 3. This is God's very word. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you were baptized into Christ have put on Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now picking up in chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no longer different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. For he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer slave, a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask for your special grace now that we would understand more deeply and intimately these truths 
about what has taken place and who we are. Would we know who we are in light of who you are? As we pray in Christ's name, amen. You've heard it used as an illustration many times of parents and all who tell their kids now, remember as you go out uh, that you're a McCutcheon, you're a Smith, you're a Roper, you're a whomever. This is who you are when you go out. Remember, what they're saying is this. Remember who you are. And that when you go out, there's a connection to the family from which you go out. uh, And it affects who you are. It's the same with the Christian. Your belief of who you are absolutely affects every bit of the life you live. Your belief in who you are and the knowledge of what's taken place affects the way you feel, the way you think, the way you act. Sometimes I hear people say, well, that's just how I feel. As if that's the trump card that trumps every other card. Well, is it possible that your feelings are hooked to a wrong belief? If so, then your feelings are incorrect. And what we have to go back to is the belief structure. Who you are, what's going on in there. That's why David said, why so downcast, O my soul? Asking, what's going on? Why are my emotions all over the place? Why am I thinking this way? Why am I feeling this way? Oh, It must be because my source of hope I've put some ways other than in God. Put your hope in God. Put your trust in God, heart, spirit, soul. Put your trust in God, and then it will affect how it is that you live your life, how you feel about things. It comes down to this identity, and that's what Paul is beginning to hit on very strongly in this passage. This is an awesome, rich text, one that I'm going to press you on a little bit in the limited time we have today, because we're going to talk uh, not just about a legal situation uh, that you are adopted as sons and daughters, and your legal standing is now a son or daughter of God, but we're going to talk about the emotional part, Ah, how you're supposed to feel, what it's supposed to do to you, how, how it is that you're supposed to come about. And for many of you, that whole feeling part, I'm stepping in some dangerous territory. Bill, we don't want any of that emotionalism. We don't want any of that easy grace. We don't want any of that stuff. Just give us Jesus. Well, my understanding of the whole getting of Jesus is that it changes the way that I emote and the way that I feel and celebrate and do. Okay? So that's where we're going to go. We're going to start first with this. First point, you were in bondage to the evil principles of the world and to the law. Paul's talking to the two groups of people. And he says there in verses 4, 1 through 3, that you were under or enslaved in verse 3. You were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Enslaved to them. And then he says uh, otherwise, that you were born under the law, and you were under it, and you were under its curse. Later on, it speaks of these worthless elementary things in verses 9. He says, don't go back to the observation of days and months and seasons. He's basically saying this, you in the, in the church who are Gentile background, you came from this elemental, you were under the powers and principles of this deep and dark age. He's basically speaking of demonic forces, and we in America downplay that. You're going to go, oh, Bill, and you can think, oh, I thought this guy was semi-educated, and now he's talking about demons. Paul talks about demons all the time, and Christ does as well. There are spiritual evil forces within the world, and he says, if you don't know Christ beforehand, you're under its power. You're bound to it in your lostness. And he also speaks to those who are from Jewish backgrounds. He says, you were lost and under bondage to the law. That you were trying to earn your salvation and being a righteous and good old southerner coming to church every Sunday and your aunt played organ in the church and everybody's a Christian. Because you went to church and you do things and you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't date girls who do and all of that stuff. And it's just, you're just a good old person. 
And the church in the south is just chock full of good old people. The church in the northeast, guess what? They're chock full of good old people who come to church. They go to mass on Saturday night. They go to early service on Sunday morning. Uh, They go and they do. Uh, The church is filled with religious people. And Paul says, be careful. If you're religious, you're under a curse. And you're lost. And you don't even know that you're lost. You're lost in your lostness. You ever been that way? First time I tried to figure out the circle at Caligny, I was lost in my lostness. <laughs> like I'm in the inside lane and I got to get over there, but I don't know how to get over there because there's all these people who seem to know what they're doing. And so I just sort of rode around for a little while. I didn't know where I was going. And it's impossible when you're doing a tight left-hand turn to look at your GPS. And you're just going and you're going, oh, I don't like people from Ohio. And oh, man, and this. And, uh, so, no offense, sorry. Half the church, <laughs> gone. Um, but basically he's saying this. First, you need to know this. You were lost. Utterly and unobjectively lost. And then I love the beginning of verse four. But, ah, because if we left it at verse three, well, that'd make you feel good. Folks, you're lost. But, God, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He says this, you were lost, and here's what happens now in this segment. First idea that we're going to look at, we're going to look at two parallel ideas about adoption. One on a legal way and one on an emotional or personal way, relational way. The legal way says this, you received adoption as sons. Why? Because of the completed work of Jesus. But in the fullness of time, Jesus came and he did his work. And now because of that, you have been adopted as sons. You are legally adopted as sons and daughters of Jesus. Look at the progression of God. Look at the progression. The agent in all of this says God sent forth whom? His son. Where did he send his son? He sent his son into the world. And then it says, why? To redeem the world with the result that we might receive the full rights and benefits of adopted sons and daughters of God. The work of Jesus wasn't just the justification. It wasn't just, and most of you have this, well, my sins are paid for. And that's sort of the negative side of it, all the negative. But guess what else happens? Not only are your sins paid for, you're adopted by God. You're a son or a daughter of this king in heaven. Adoption for some has a negative connotation. My mom uh, wrestled with adoption. She was adopted by a family who treated her horribly. She didn't get to sit at the table with the other siblings because she was adopted. She didn't get any inheritance because she was adopted. Uh, She got treated differently because she was adopted. And so when she went in in 1950-something, heard Billy Graham in New York City at one of his, uh, his crusades talking about God and the love of the Father and how he wanted to adopt her, she went, I don't want to be adopted by another person. And she had to wrestle throughout the course of her life with this idea of, I don't mind my sins being forgiven. I like that idea. But this idea of being adopted? No. What God is wanting to say to you today is don't let any human element, no, no perception that you have of a father keep you from believing and accepting the fact that God wants to adopt you as his son and that he's a good father. He doesn't reflect earthly fathers. Earthly fathers are supposed to reflect him. You realize that, right? 
Sometimes we take God and submit him and subordinate him under what earthly fathers have done. And guess what? I had a great dad, but he sure wasn't perfect. And I've been in counseling quite a bit because of him. I tell my sons, guess what? Part of your inheritance is going to go to the counseling you're going to need because I'm your dad. <laughs> I get it. We're all, we, we love our sons and we try to live and to love our kids, but we mess up. And so I can't look at the father through the lens of my father. I have to look at my father through the lens of my heavenly father. And so what God is saying to you today is this is what happens. Not only are your sins forgiven, but you are legally in standing with the father as his son or daughter. Now, in a Roman understanding of that briefly, it basically says this. If you had any debts, the Roman dad would pay all of your debts. You'd be brought in. And he was now legally your father. And everything that he had was at your at your pleasure. It was everything was yours. You were legally changed at that moment. You were no longer the same. Everything about you was different. Would it affect you and be different if all of a sudden Bill Gates came to you and said, I'm going to adopt you and there's no prenup. I'm just adopting you. And when I pass away, and even before I pass away, you get to enjoy everything. I listen to these billionaires uh, now who are coming together, and I appreciate the work of philanthropy, uh, but what they're saying is we're not giving any of our stuff to our kids. Now, I understand that, except it does incredible damage to the picture of adoption in the scriptures of saying what God says is not only am I going to give you everything, I'm going to give you more than you ever could have dreamed or imagined just because I've adopted you. So that's that legal thing that happens there. You are adopted by God. God now sees you legally as his son or daughter. Everybody good with that? Sins are forgiven. You're legally adopted. It's kind of ho-hum. I mean, that's good and all. But, yeah. But then there's this other thing that takes place. And it's fascinating. He says, you've been given the full rights of this son, of adoption as sons. And there's no English word for that. But it basically in verse 5 says, you've been given sonness or sonship. That, that you are called, you are now legally his son. Everything about it, you are now his son or daughter. And that's good news. But it doesn't really stir the heart. So what did God do? He knew that. And he says this. The second part is... And because you are sons, because you've already been adopted, verse 6, because of this, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Remember how he did a progression with the first one who was the agent? God sent his son where into the world to do what? To redeem those who are under the law so they become sons and daughters of God. Same progression here. Now God the Father sends what? Not his son, but the spirit of his son. Where? Not into the earth, not into the world, but into the hearts of those who've already been adopted. For what purpose? That they would cry out, Abba, Father. That they would have an emotional response to the legal transaction that took place in their lives. That's where I'm going to lose some of you, right there. Hear what this text doesn't say. The transaction that took place is not based on your emotional response to it. This emotion does not save you. The feeling doesn't save you. God says, I've saved you. You are my sons. You are my daughters. Now I'm sending the spirit of my son into your hearts. Why? Whoosh. So that you'd feel like a son or a daughter. Because if you feel it or don't feel it, are you still justified and adopted? Yeah. You don't have to feel it. 
But is that really a good life? Most of us want to live that life, or we've been taught that we live that sort of Valium-coded Christian life. Valium is good in many situations, but you know what Valium does? It clips off the highs of your life, and it clips off the emotional lows of your life, and it gives you this mundane middle life so that you can just make it. I was with someone recently who is struggling with depression, and the only way that this person could really get through it was on Valium, and there was just no emotion. It was just life. He was making it, but it was just day by day. You know what I see most often in the church? A valium-coded Christianity. So tell me about this Jesus that you have. Well, my sins are forgiven. I'm adopted as his son. I get to go to heaven. But I don't want to get too fired up about that. But I don't get too low about it either. What Paul's saying here is God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Where? Where did he send him? Into you. To take up residence in you. That's right, the mystery. Here we come back to it. How in the world? Guess what has happened in your life if you've become a believer, if you put your faith in Christ? The spirit of his son is dwelling in you. It's taken up residence there. And it is doing that not just for the purpose so that you make it through to the end, not for the purpose of just restraining sin in your life, not for any of those other purposes which are purposes of the Holy Spirit, but part of his function in your life is so that you will cry out with great emotion, Abba, Father, Dad, Dad, you're my dad. I'm your son. And it wells up in you joy unexpressible. You ever been away from a loved one and then you get to see him again? Oh, what do you do? Hey, good to see you again. Fist bump. (laughs) You run. You run to him. One of my favorite memories of being in Midtown Memphis was we had this house. It was a four square and it was built and there was, you walked in the front door and on the right was the dining room and on the left was the little living room and back in the back left was the kitchen and to the back right was the sort of sitting room back there and in the middle was a long hallway, almost as long as this aisle and it was brand new hardwoods and they were slick as all get out. And when daddy, when I would come home, my boys were much younger then, and they would do the dad jump. Dad, don't go. Stay right there, dad. And they'd come, and they'd run as fast as they could to me. And I'd have to get down like this and say, come on. And they would try to jump as far as they could, or they would slide in their sock feet, and it would just be an embrace. Why? Dad's home. Dad's home. That's the emotion that Paul is trying to capture here for you. Do you view your heavenly father like that? Do you look at him and go, he's my dad. I love it. I just want to get near him. I want to be close to him and in his embrace. And I know men, especially for you, I'm talking some foreign language. But you're going, Bill, this is getting really uncomfortable. My wife has tried to get me to do this for years and I can't do it. I'm a man. That's not manly. It's the essence of a man. Christ loved his father. He desired to be in his father's presence and one with his father. The joy of his father brought him joy because he was his son. He delighted in it. That's what we're talking about here. 
Legally, you're a son or a daughter forgiven and with all the wealth of all the heavens thrown in, but you're also emotionally his son. He's calling you into this experience. It's a portion of that work in your life. Have you ever felt like you've been abandoned? Well, if you do, you don't really believe that the Father loves you the way he does. That you're left out on the side and relegated to those things. You see, this is a difficult difficulty of the human heart. Go over to Luke 15 for a moment. I won't spend a lot of time here. We're running out of time. Uh, But Luke 15 talks about these two brothers who are lost. And the younger brother is lost. And when he comes back to the father, how does he come to the father? Dad, it's awesome to see you. I'm back home. Um, Dad, I'm willing to be your servant. And I'm, I'm willing to serve you in order to gain back your love. Is that honoring the father? Hey, dads, moms, how do you want to love your children? Like this? Or like this? Do you want your children to ask you just for a little? Or do you want them to believe so much in the generosity and love of your heart that they'll ask you for it all? That younger brother didn't honor the father when he came back and said, let me just be a servant in your house. And so the father had to show him, I don't want a servant, I want a son. And what did the father do? He embraced him. It says that he kissed him. To the point where Spurgeon preached an awesome sermon called The Kiss. The father kissed him. What was the intrinsic difference between the older brother and the younger brother? The younger brother had experienced the kiss of the father He had been reminded of the intimacy that God wants for you. And man, you can be as tough as you want to be, but you know deep down inside that's what you desire. And you wish that your parents and your dad maybe had shown you that. God wants to show you that. It's that difference between the little girl who's walking alongside her father and the father is there and she knows that he's there and someone says, who is this? And she goes, well, that's my dad. Well, she knows it. Versus when that father looks down and picks her up and in the park throws her in the air and twirls her around and celebrates her. Was she any less the daughter in the first time? Did she experience it more the second? Think about this. When someone compliments your children, what's your normal response, parents? Sadly. Boy, you've got a great kid. You should see him at home. (laughs) You've got an awesome daughter. She's beautiful. Boy, you should see the bathroom. It takes her an hour to get that way. You know, what do we do? We diminish it. God doesn't diminish you. You know what he says about you guys? I love you. Hey, let me tell you about my son. Let me tell you about my daughter. Let me tell you about who they are. He wants you to have this emotional belief and response so that you will run to him and with a great cry, Abba, Father, that's not just a little, hey, Dad. That's a, I'm not going to do it. I'm mic'd. I'd blow your ears off. And all you'd be going, Stout. so. But you go, Dad, Dad. With great intimacy, Daddy, Father. And you come with confidence, knowing that this dad, others are going to fail you. Others are going to leave you. This one won't. This one won't.
So how do you get there? How do you get there? You go back to verses four and five. And you stare at that cross that said Jesus came to redeem you. And you look at that cross and you look at the Father's love for you until it so washes over you and affects you and moves your heart and challenges you and touches you in a way until you say, yeah, he's my dad. And when you believe that, you will live differently. You will live confidently. You won't be as upset when someone disses you, when someone speaks poorly of you, when someone doesn't like you. When you believe that you have the Father's love in all of its fullness, it gives you an overwhelming confidence in this world and humility mixed in to go out and to take on all challenges. Why? You may not like me, but my Father in heaven always will. I may lose everything in this world, but I won't ever lose not only my wealth in him, but his love for me. Robert Murray McShane, a great Scottish pastor, wrote in his memoirs one day, was much um, aware of my sinfulness and faults today and deeply repented, but went to bed tonight confident of my father's love and under the smiles of my God. Isn't that good? When you go to bed at night, tonight, do you believe that your Father in heaven is smiling on you? Going, that's my son. That's my daughter. He loves you. For some of you, you're having a hard time wrestling this one down. A good friend of mine and an elder at another church who's now a pastor said, Bill, I don't know God in that way, but I want to. I hope you have the want to. Because he wants you to know him that way. Let's pray. God, thank you for blowing apart our categories. We look at you as judge and even as miser to some degree. That yeah, you'll forgive our sins. Yeah, we'll get to heaven. But the rest of this life is just drudgery. Would we be able to see you as our dad who loves us? And not as just an earthly dad, but our heavenly father with all the beauty and characteristics. And father, would you break through the hard hold that so many have in this life on their emotions and on their thoughts that they want to believe it, but they're afraid because they've been hurt before, maybe abused by horribly by their earthly father, abandoned by him, mistreated by him. Father, would you heal those wounds? Would we not ever make them seem small, but would they be able to see you and be overwhelmed by your presence in their lives? a good and loving father to the fatherless. You are an orphan's wildest dream. And you're our reality. Amen. Let's stand and sing of this.